0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks Michael Oliver's yellow card should have to operate on a cooldown system. My name is Cameron MacDonald and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport, Radio and GiveMeSport, but above all else, we're fans.
1: Yeah, thanks for that Cam, and uh, yeah, I think uh, probably a lot of referees' yellow cards could well be put on a cooldown. I-, I wouldn't mind that, that'd be okay. Um, Anything to stop the uh, just get reassigned and and move on um, cycle that we seem to find ourselves in.
0: Uh, Breaking news before your regularly scheduled programming, uh, as we were going to discuss, uh, a little bit of news has come out of the European Court of Justice concerning the European Super League, uh, claiming, uh, or sort of declaring rather, that it was unlawful for UEFA and FIFA to block the breakaway competition uh, and that it would be unlawful for them to punish uh, clubs from joining a new breakaway competition Uh, Hot on the heels of this, of course, followed a new announcement from A22, who were the company uh, in charge of the Super League and the sort of its new project, who announced that new project. Um, This new format comes with a couple of changes. They released a very sort of glossy, um, you know, presentation that was really key to stress that it was an open competition and based on merit. Um, Although dig a little deeper, and at least in my opinion, that is maybe not entirely the case. Uh, the way that this new competition is set to work is that there will be three uh, leagues, the Star League, uh, the Gold League, and the Blue League, uh, in that yeah, order. And which I hate. Um, I know it's such such corny naming conventions. But the, the way that it'll work is that the sort of gold, the Star League, the top division, two teams will get relegated uh, from at the end of the season and go down to the Gold League with two teams being promoted from that. Uh, and Two teams from the Gold League will be uh, demoted or relegated to the Blue League uh, with two teams being promoted from that. And then 20 of the 32 teams from the Blue League uh, will be sort of relegated from that entirely with 20 new teams coming in from European competition the sort of immediate problem with this and sort of the thing that flies in the face of it being merit based is that hypothetically you could have a team like Aston Villa for example this season or an Union Berlin last season, uh, Who Union Berlin maybe the better example because they have uh, done really well in the Bundesliga last season and ended up playing in the Champions League and playing against teams like Napoli and Real Madrid with this system, what would happen w- would be that they would qualify for the Blue League, so even if you were to, even if Villa were to win the league, they wouldn't qualify for sort of the top division, they'd qualify for the Blue league and then they would have to win promotion twice so it it kind of flies in the face of you know you can't have that magical season and then qualify for the champions league so they're sort of really keen to stress oh it's really merit-based and it's an open system but essentially you'll have a lot of clubs grandfathered in and if you are for example a villa or an union berlin uh, you still have to get into the blue league to begin with by having a a season well above your usual uh, standards and then win that twice or win the blue league and then win the gold league to to finally make it up to the big boys
1: yeah and that as you say will create not only will it create um, a lot more steps to to get into really the top um, echelons of europe it also you know At the moment, um, it's important to say, Premier League clubs have been banned from joining. That may change. Um, But if, for example, you're in Spain, um, if there are three tiers of um, these European Super Leagues, that could well be six or seven, maybe even more, of the top teams immediately drafted away from La Liga, which would just take out, especially La Liga is a good example, because it would take out so much of the revenue if even Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid Um, joined a, a new league but that would just completely decimate the the domestic competition
0: yeah it's a good point and um you know I think before we even get into the sort of whole structure it's just so amazing that there has been this you know groundbreaking court decision that's come out today and within minutes these sort of super league has come back and I'm sure there'll be some who, who like this proposal but the vast majority of the fan response ha- has been overwhelmingly negative again they've sort of missed the point and sort of gone oh it's meritocratic and it's an open system but essentially the big boys the Real Madrid's and Barcelona's who are sort of the, the key architects behind this will be up in the top division and the sort of of minnows uh, or quote-unquote of smaller clubs who could do really well will never get a chance to play in the same competition as them. And and it really strikes me as, I, I almost took a different lean to it when I read this because it struck me as almost such a missed opportunity we are in a position at the moment where I would argue that fan sentiment with, you know, towards UEFA and FIFA has maybe never been lower than it currently is now. I think it's actually such an open goal for any reasonable proposal to create an alternative to UEFA run competitions and FIFA run competitions and, and, and if there was a potential Super League that proposed a better alternative to the Swiss-style Champions League, for example, I think a lot of fans would be susceptible to that. But the Super League sure. has sort of, they've proven again that they just, they don't get it. They don't get what it is. They've sort of latched onto the criticism of the initial plans being, it's not meritocratic. there's no promotion, there's no relegation. And they've sort of integrated it in the most sort of bare bones not really sort of sense-making way just to sort of go, oh, well, no, no, it, we can now say it's meritocratic because, look, you can go down, you can go up. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, this system, as it stands and as you've theorised it, we don't know who's agreed or or we know some people who've come out and disagreed, like Manchester United made a statement, Atletico Madrid, for example. But as it stands, the way they've conceived it is you could have someone like Chelsea finish 14th this season, get into the Star League, while Aston Villa could theoretically win and go into the Blue League... And as long as it's based on that sort of ridiculous system, it obviously won't work, and it obviously won't have the backing of the majority of fans. Even the majority of, in this example, Chelsea fans would go, that's not really a proper competition. Like, yeah, it'd be nice in the short term, but
1: eh? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, it's all... You can see that it's it's a badly thought out strategy because clubs are immediately rejecting it. Um, I I found it quite funny that Manchester United rejected it, given that they're currently not involved. (laughs) Um, But Bayern Munich rejected it. And and the caveat there is that they also rejected the initial proposals. Um, Definitely Germany. I think Dortmund also rejected the initial proposals. Germany much more considered to be fan-run clubs. But Atletico Madrid rejected them too. And they were firmly part of the initial plans. So it does seem like a baffling thing that they didn't get approval from everyone. All of, all of the clubs that, that they want to try and break away um, before even announcing these things. And it, it does seem like a bit of a scramble rather than something that they've spent the last year or more kind of carefully weighing up and ensuring that it was the best possible thing that they could announce as soon as they got the green light from this court appeal.
0: See, I kind of disagree. I think that this, and it's kind of damning, that this is the best that they could come up with. Like, the first mm. one was definitely scribbled on a napkin and sort of the the format. This one they've pulled together they've really just, they've taken the feedback of fans don't want something that is not merit-based and is not competitive and doesn't have sort of progression and, and, and relegation, promotion and relegation, I should say. And they've gone, you know, oh, okay, well, let's integrate those uh, qualities in, in the most meaningless way possible. <laughs> and then we can sort of say we've tipped those boxes. It, it Basically, what it smacks to me, and I think we've had a lot of things like this, like Project Big Picture was another one. I think the initial run of the Super League, obviously being led by... Um, I don't want to completely lay this all at Americans' door, but a lot of American owners, uh, certainly in the Premier League, it does just smack of the oh, this is from the people who don't understand football and who basically don't understand the culture behind football, and it, they've they've understood that it needs to be merit-based and there needs to be promotion and relegation. They haven't understood why, and that's why they've integrated it into in this
1: fashion. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good assessment. There will be more. It details. is interesting.
0: Oh, go on. No, no, no you're, you're right in saying there'll be more details to come, and I'm sure this isn't the last that will speak of it. As you mentioned, there are quite a few clubs there. PSG is another one that I would mention quite notably uh, that have come out, obviously rejected the initial one, but have come out again, uh, who have rejected it. There's also, at time of recording, this happened sort of four or five hours ago, uh, quite a few teams that have not yet uh, sort of said anything yet. There's a there's a sense that people are sort of scoping things out and seeing how things settle, Um but I think Alexander Cheferin made uh, an incredibly, uh, I find it rare that I find myself praising UA for any of the executives, but this is where the Super League puts us sometimes. Um, <laughs> he sort of made the point where he was like, I, I, "I hope they start it as soon as possible. I hope they start it and they have two teams, and you know, people tune in to watch Barcelona versus Real Madrid eight hundred times, and neither of them are playing. You know, so uh, that's that's where it stands at the moment. Because if enough of these teams." reject the Super League and you have Barcelona and Real Madrid still scrapping around there I mean what I my personal thought is that I think they'll try and fold in some of the Saudi clubs it'll stop being so much of a European Super League and they'll sort of try and get some of the Saudi clubs in because obviously Saudi Arabia at the moment is really keen to get their clubs on more of a global stage and to play against you know big notorious clubs so I think they would definitely be very excited to, to sort of get a chance to play an official tournament against a Barcelona or Real Madrid um, mm-hmm. but just based on this it, it seems like it's dead on arrival we'll see how things evolve but it, it really is astonishing I mean even as someone who didn't like the first Super League and didn't sort of have any interest in those people making decisions going forwards I'm still astonished and kind of shocked that they've managed to fumble it this badly because you had a blank slate you had a real opportunity when people are not big fans of UEFA and FIFA and would happily desert you know their greedy model for modern football and you still managed to fumble somehow <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I agree in some respects. I think it seems to be dead and arrival if you can't get English football clubs, by all accounts, the biggest league in the world. But at the same time, maybe that opens it up to, as you say, um, Saudi teams and, and teams from other countries. And and maybe you would have more of a global league, whether or not that would work in terms of the practicality of, of things, who's to say. But I, I definitely think that it makes it a lot harder because if you don't have all of the top clubs in Europe agreeing to this and buying into this, it makes it so much harder to try and maintain any sort of stable like base for having this league in the long term. It looks like German clubs are, are, are voted out, have, have voted out, have voted out, sorry, not are voted out. Um, German clubs have voted out because they don't think it's the best thing for the fans if English clubs are also not able to join, that's arguably the two strongest leagues. And I'm talking about in terms of revenue, and I'm talking about in terms of um of like fan attendance in games. The Bundesliga far outstrips all other leagues. The Premier League comes second. And I think that if you're a Spanish club or an Italian club or any any sort of team that joins, like a Saudi club, and you're looking at this, Saudi's probably different, but say you're one of those Spanish teams, um, or one of those Italian teams, or maybe even Uh, a French team, and you're looking at the model and you're just thinking, this isn't working for me 100%. Your eye will be caught by the English clubs and the German clubs who are still continuing through this domestic model. And I I think, all I can think is that you'd be so much less committed. And I think to try and make this work, you need to be really committed. So I am inclined to agree with you that I think this is dead on arrival.
0: Yeah it it definitely seems that way and you know I mentioned earlier that the Saudi clubs will be licking their lips at the idea of playing against Real Madrid and Barcelona in an official competition that is definitely true Um, I think the model for this new Super League has 64 teams all in all and I think the Saudi Pro Pro League will definitely be licking their lips a lot less if the makeup of those 64 teams aside from Real Madrid and Barcelona isn't teams like Liverpool and Manchester United and Bayern Munich and PSG and is instead a bunch of you know you know second tier ish teams uh, or even some of the better italian and spanish teams but i think even sort of like a real saucy lad, and as you mentioned atletico Madrid have already rejected it so it's not even going to be some of the best of the rest teams it seems like at the moment so yeah seems like maybe dead on arrival lots of news to come out yet um but glad we managed to touch on yet we will now get back into your regularly regularly scheduled episode <laughs> cheers guys
1: Lots happened this week. We've seen the end of the Champions League group stages and the draw for the next round of sixteen. We've seen another managerial change in the Premier League, um, updates on the Carabao Cup uh, and more. But thought we would start off with just a small note on Tom Lockyer of Luton Town, who collapsed on the pitch um, today in a match against Bournemouth. Uh, and the Premier League have said that well. The match was abandoned and the Premier League has said that it will be replayed in full. Um, And we hope that Tom Lockyer will make a a full recovery. Um, It sadly is not the first time, I believe, that he has had issues. I think back in May last season, um, he collapsed again 12 minutes into Luton's playoff final against Coventry City and carried out of Wembley and taken to hospital. Um, So fingers crossed uh, he will be okay. Um, and I'm sure we'll update as and when, and if it's relevant. By which I just mean, you know, if if there are new, if there's news soon after we do our podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not not too much to add to what you've said there. Um, only that you know, you hope the next time he is cleared to play because he was obviously cleared to play following that collapse against Coventry City uh, in the in, in the playoff final uh, and waved ahead to play in the Premier League. You would hope that if he sort of waved again to play, that it's all. It's all on the straight and narrow, because the last thing we'd want to see is is a player collapsing and and not getting back up. So for the time being, uh, he is, you know, apparently all right as rain. uh, So let's hope that all continues. but as you say, uh, good to flag that. We've got lots and lots of football to get into. We are in the interesting position of having had three different tournaments of interest being played between this episode's record uh, and last, of course, the Champions League, the Carabao Cup, as well as a, an absolutely raucous fixture, uh, fixture list of Premier League games. Um, Let's start off with the Champions League, uh, because that is one that has just had a phase end. Uh, Of course, the group stages have come to a close, uh, and a couple of teams, uh, certainly notable within this country, have been knocked out, those being Manchester United and Newcastle United, both fully knocked out. Interesting runs for both teams. Uh, I think Manchester United's one characterised very much by how can we concede the most goals ever in a Champions League group stage, losing every game or or even the games they won, like something three. <laughs> um, and, and Newcastle having like a really sort of unfortunate, um, unfortunate, but also at the same time, they didn't really turn up against Milan, but just after their result against PSG, um, really quite sort of, they'll, they'll feel quite aggrieved that they haven't managed to make it through. Um, their performance in some of the other games wasn't quite good enough, but the fact that that was also true of someone like a PSG, um, you know, it meant that they nearly got away with it and and they haven't maybe due to nothing to do with them. It was quite interesting watching at the time uh, when it was sort of the perfect end to a group. It was similar to when you have that in a World Cup or in a Euro or something, when it's like goals can change the entire construction of a group at any given note,
1: at moment. Yeah, the, the best kind moment. Of outcome, potential outcome.
0: Ab- absolutely. And I was sort of musing to myself, you know, as, as I find myself musing a lot lately and we even mused about it last week, I was like, if... PSG get knocked out of Europe entirely or even if they get knocked out of the Europa League does that, does that mean killing the Mbappe goes in January is he gonna like, like would he take the time out of his day to play in the Europa League or would he be like fuck this I'm expediting my transfer <laughs>
1: hey uh, I mean um, don't want to speak for him but I think, uh, I think you might be right I think uh, it could have been a, a potentially uh, real significant problem for PSG had they not uh, finished second with their draw um, and on goal difference. Um, Yeah, it's... I mean, you say they're they're notable omissions, Newcastle and Manchester United. They are notable in the sense that they'll be out of Europe entirely. But, you know, I I think um, watching the Premier League, neither of them are a massive shock. You know, it's not like they've been on... They've both been on, like, amazing tears um, in incredible form since the start of the season. Um, You know, they've played fine. Um, They've not looked like pushing on or, and challenging in Europe. They'll obviously be disappointed that they're not playing even in the Europa League. But I, I would say it's it's one of those ones where on the face of it, you look at it and you go, Group A, Copenhagen, FC Copenhagen, have finished second, Man you have finished fourth. Yes, that does seem surprising. But also, I don't know, Man you didn't really ever get started. They won one and drew one and they lost four. That's just not, you know, that's it's not a surprise to me. I would say.
0: Yeah, it's a fair point. I think it's just, especially from sort of an English-centric view, you sort of look at certainly Manchester United and you go, man, even when they've been quite bad, they've managed to sort of, I mean, obviously they've been in the Europa League at times, but to not even be in Europe at all is is, is kind of crazy. It does sort of lend a little bit of a question here though, because I mentioned notable omissions and you, you know, perhaps quite rightly corrected me, there's been a lot of conversation about this round of 16 and sort of questions around whether this is the sort of weakest, uh, putting in air quotes there, round of 16 we've had for a long time. I mean, a lot of the teams, uh, when you look at that ratlats sort of last 16, it feels like there isn't as much weight. And you look at some of the teams, like a Copenhagen, for example, or like a Lazio, maybe, or a Real Sociedad, they're not particularly... You, you know they're not teams you expect to see that all the time and and it sort of lends the question as like is it a particularly weak year or is this a a reshuffle of power are we starting to see you know more teams sort of drop away and okay we've got the milans are falling away these days and we've got the manchester united falling away and in their place come the other teams who are who are sort of you know shuffling around
1: i think a little of column a a little of column b i think um there have been some some omissions from some of the i guess classically champions league Sides. I'm talking people like Galatasaray. Um, you know, I'm talking people like Benfica, Milan. All all of these type teams. But also, you know, I think I think there are a lot of strong sides in there. And especially with teams like PSV coming to the fray, that that does feel quite cyclical. In that they've been very you know strong in Europe in the past, and now it's in, in the last few years it's been Ajax's kind of turn to to have a really good time. But also PSV run Ajax really close a, a lot of the time in the league. And uh, I think it's, yeah, I-, I think that's just a little bit of a shuffle um, that they are now in there and it doesn't feel weaker for it. There are some some notable omissions. I think things like the fact that from, as you say, the, the English centric perspective, there's no Chelsea here. There's no Liverpool here. There's no Spurs here. It's City and Arsenal, and I think that's it.
0: Mm, uh, yeah, for the Champions League. Yeah.
1: So yeah, def- definitely, definitely in in that regard, it feels weaker because also, I, I, yeah, I think I think we do have a bit of a bias, but I would say there's maybe one or two more, maybe one more rogue team than we normally get. That's how I would categorize it.
0: Yeah, I mean, my sort of—I think the example you gave there is sort of the perfect example to encapsulate it. Psv versus Ajax, like you're, we're all very used to seeing Ajax in the in the Champions League knockouts, and. It is not that this is a sort of weaker draw. It's just that PSV have, in recent years, become the, or certainly in recent year, become the dominant of those two in their respective leagues. So it's just kind of interesting to look at that. Or, for example, like Lazio and Milan falling away from when they won the league a couple of seasons ago and were even in the Champions League semi-final last season. Well, it's, it's
1: Lazio and- instead of Juventus, for example.
0: Well, it, well, there you go, Juventus being another another classic example, Milan, only really popping up because they were actually in the competition, but Juventus not even there uh, uh, to begin with, so so yeah, I mean, interesting there, I mean, obviously as you mentioned to the English-centric point, only two English teams, which may well have its repercussions, I mean, a lot of uh, you know English fans are sort of, English fans of clubs that are not one of these clubs notably maybe an Arsenal or a City fan uh, are sort of going, ah, United, they've sort of failed to do it, and so have Newcastle and Chelsea enjoy no European football, and it's like that's one of those things that is fun to gloat about in the moment, but might come back to bite you because if the coefficient starts to go next time it's your turn to finish fourth place, looking at like an Arsenal for example, you might learn that you don't have a Champions League spot after all.
1: Well, I think um, I would have to fact check myself later on potentially next week, but I, I think I, I read something about the fact that the coefficients gets recalibrated at the end of this season perhaps, and the fact that we don't have many teams in Europe and in the Champions League could well mean that one of our spots gets taken away and given to someone else. I think the main contender was going to be France. um, And they also have an incredibly weak uh, amount of teams, at least in the Champions League. So that's, that's good for us. But yeah, it could well have quite immediate repercussions.
0: Yeah, well, maybe not immediate. Well, it could be. I don't really know exactly how they they weight it. But given the fact that two of the last three winners of the whole competition have been English, surely that counts for a little bit more than like not being four teams who will make it through. About again, I say that. I'm not really sure how they wait it. They might think, well, if only the best make it through, only the best should be able to get in in the first place. So it might be that way around.
1: All to come. Oh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Also, you know, if Arsenal have a long run into the... the tournament and Man City have a long run into the tournament we could well have two in the semi-finals which would again be a return to strength
0: yeah, and it's uh, it, it's easy to imagine that sort of thing happening, especially when you look at a lot of the you know I talked about it being weaker in terms of the the makeup of the teams, but also you look at a lot of the teams uh, who are there. I mean, someone like a Napoli, for example, who were really strong uh, last season, obviously winning the league and getting into the quarterfinals. They're having a bit of a difficult time in the league this season. I believe they just lost four nil to Frosinone. Uh, Barcelona, even though they won the league last season, aren't at their usual sort of maximum power. Um, the same would go for someone like an Atletico Madrid or an Inter. Uh, A lot of these teams uh, aren't really, I mean, you could even potentially make the case for Bayern because they're not top of their league as they usually are, but we all know they'll come back eventually. So it looks like an interesting, um, it it kind of feels like one of those seasons where for the right team that has the right time, they could have a bit of a smash and grab. It might not be a Real Madrid or a Bayern or a a Barcelona this year. It could be someone a little bit unexpected. Realistically, it'll be City again or it'll be Jude Bellingham's Real Madrid, but an interesting setup.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's well, I I would love to see um, a couple of upsets early on, but, you know, I, I may well be wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, well, I could you know I could see like a real saucy dad. I could see like I, I don't really know that well uh, how saucy dad play to, to be completely honest with you. But I'm imagining uh, you know I'm inventing in my head like quite a pragmatic play style, <laughs> uh, and I could see them sort of holding out Paris Saint Germain with a really pragmatic uh, style of play and, and, and sort of winning one nil at their place. But that that might be a complete misrepresentation of how they play. Get at me in the uh, in the emails, any Spanish football
1: fans. <laughs> I love that yeah just just weigh in I, I think I think they're defensive <laughs> <laughs> I don't I said defensive I said
0: pragmatic uh let's oh, move I back
1: apologize.
0: let's move back to the Premier League uh because as you mentioned we've had our our second managerial sacking uh, of the season Steve Cooper has been relieved of his duties and replaced uh, I think he was literally like in the building uh before Steve Cooper had even officially left Nuno Espirito Santo um an interesting one here. I've read some some quite interesting pieces about this, uh, just understanding a little bit uh, as to why this has happened. Obviously, Steve Cooper took Nottingham Forest up. This is, you know, despite the fact they're not doing so hot in the Premier League, some of the best Nottingham Forest have been doing in the last 25 years. So, you know, there are some who have gone like, this is a bit, you know, even though they're not doing so hot in the Premier League, they're in the Premier League. So this is a bit harsh. Um, but I think this has sort of come as a result of, Nottingham Forest had barely stayed up last season, and I think that gave Steve Cooper a bit of a stay of execution, but I think he was sort of on thin ice as as it was um, coming into this season, and I think he has maybe been a victim of, yes, the results that Nottingham Forest have had, but particularly with Everton finding a lot of form now, and to a lesser extent Luton finding some form... It's no longer really easy to sort of hang around that sort of 16th, 17th position because someone could suddenly gazump you. I think we all thought at the start sure. of the season that it was a bit of an easy ride, right. like you, maybe if you were a manager of a Nottingham Forest or a Fulham early on before they found some of their form, you were kind of going to get a, a, a get out of jail free card because the bottom three teams are going to let you sort of pass by. And then even more so when Everton had 10 points deducted. But with Everton and Luton finding a little bit of form, um, it could be a third team instead that, that falls down. I think one of the things I found quite interesting was um, in reading about this, I was learning a little bit more about Evangelos Maranakis, who is the um, eccentric uh, Greek owner of uh, Nottingham Forest, but also obviously of Olympiakos, And just getting a little bit of an insight into his uh, mindset as an owner um, and the relationship that he has with the fans, in that he, part of the reason that he has sort of... uh, Apparently, sacked Steve Cooper is not because it's sort of they're now at risk of going down, even if they weren't at risk of going down. He's sort of quite put out by the lack of progress that they've made. Apparently, he sees sort of his ownership of Nottingham Forest as a chance for Nottingham Forest to regain their sort of their full glory, not just be in the Premier League, but you know, start competing for the Premier League and sort of want some of the mentality around the club that is around his other club in Greece, which have been sort of 47 time winners of their domestic league, obviously. A very different format and cli- uh, not format, but climate there than in the Premier League, where Nottingham Forest have, have not been in the big time for, for quite some time. But interesting that he's sort of got these lofty ambitions for the club, which on on the face of it, as a fan, is what you would want to hear. In practice, can sometimes feel a little bit like, oh god, is he is he trying to shoot for the moon here and get a torpedo us? Which I think we maybe saw a little bit, mm. like we almost saw that last season with the like eight million signings. So it's like no one can doubt the commitment there and the money that he's put down. Is that a coherent strategy?
1: Well, I mean, the short answer is not really. Um, where do you where do you land on this? Do you think that this is an unreasonable firing, or do you think that with Nuno they are now more likely to stay up? I or think both? I, it could be both.
0: I, I think they'll be more likely to stay up. I think that Steve Cooper, quite unfortunately, has sort of played the unenviable role of sort of a patsy. I think he took. Uh, you know, obviously took Forrest up and has worked quite well with a lot of the players. He has had a couple of fallings out. I believe he fell out with Joe Worrell, who's the club captain. I think things have sort of, the, the fans still absolutely loved him, but I think there's something started to sour a bit. There was a bit of a perception that he'd taken them as far as they could get. In a lot of ways, this might be a lot like Gary O'Neill getting let go from Bournemouth, which is one of those rare situations that seems to have benefited everyone. Like Gary O'Neill obviously doing his thing over at Wolves. Bournemouth seemed to be doing really well under Andoni Arreola. Um so, so everyone's happy. And, and I could see the same thing happening here. I could see Nuno uh, coming in, capitalising off the really solid foundation that Cooper has laid, and, and sort of taking them forwards. Um, and I can see Steve Cooper getting the job at another Premier League club pretty sharpish. Like I've heard that... Um, you know, even while he was in the forest job, because it was quite obvious he was on thin ice. A lot of the other clubs were sort of checking his availability. Crystal palace were were one big example. So it it could be an example where it's all smiles round for everyone, um, which would be great because I think Steve Cooper, did he deserve to get sacked? I mean, forest aren't playing amazing football. Is that entirely his fault? I would argue, no. So I hope he does get another job quite quickly. One of the things Mm. I did find quite funny about this, um, just a sort of a little tidbit as well. Um, in my sort of research into this and into Nottingham Forest inner workings and sort of the the mad machine that is Marinakis, I found out that um, Nottingham Forest number two, uh, not as in Steve Cooper's assistant, as in the number two and like their entire corporate structure, uh, is their sporting director, uh, who is Evangelos Marinakis' twenty four year old son. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's quite interesting (laughs) that on the on the one hand he's like oh like steve this isn't good enough we need to be a serious club we're nottingham forest we need to be challenging for the highest honours like we once did and on the other he's like ah my lad now you'll be taking charge of the transfer window
1: (laughs) oh gosh um there you go um yeah it's not again not not the best sign of of the club for things to come um When I was looking at Nottingham Forest and looking at their form, I think the thing that struck me was the most was that if you look at the games that they won, I think they've won three games in the league this season. Two of those have been against teams in the top half of of the table. Um, One was against, I think, Newcastle. One was against Chelsea. They haven't beaten a team in the bottom half of the table since middle of August, since the second game week. And I think, you know, in, in terms of, you know, likelihood of staying up. I think you really need to be winning those six pointers and getting more from them. Um, because in recent um, in recent times, um, you know they've they've lost to Everton one nil at home, um, which is really bad. They couldn't be Luton. Um, they couldn't be Brentford. They couldn't be Burnley at home. Um, even when Burnley went down to ten men, uh, I, I think that and they they couldn't be. Um, I think uh, was it? I think it was it was Sheffield that they that they managed to beat um, at the beginning of the season. But I think it's just an inability to compete with the teams around them on the pitch um, that has led to this sacking, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I think it has, and I think probably on balance, it was time for Steve Cooper to go. I do have my sort of, I do feel sorry for him because I think it's not entirely his fault. Oh, but I do too. also Absolutely. think that that, that Nuno is going to come in and that that sort of new manager bounce, and and also just having like. I I think what's what Part of what has made Steve Cooper's job so difficult is he was manager during that initial period when you had about 60 players arrive at the club and sort of they all have to settle in and you all have to sort of figure out a place for everyone and then there was sort of it was last summer that there was a shed load and then this summer there was like another big shed load as well. I think it was like last summer they spent more than the likes of Real Madrid, PSG and Bayern <laughs> Nottingham Forest uh, and, and now they sort of brought in load more lads this summer and I think Steve Cooper has had the quite difficult task of trying to get everyone set in in theory Nuno might be able to come in and sort of it's a little bit more established the players are a little bit more familiar there's less of that work to do I, I'm sure there will still be plenty of work to do in finding some coherency in, in that squad but a lot of that dog work might have already been done by Steve Cooper and, and now he can sort of build on that
1: yeah absolutely I mean I think um if you look at Forest squad they've got they've absolutely got enough talent there to stay up they really do. Um, you know, it's... It, I love... Um, I don't know if you looked through their attackers recently, their forwards, but it's a real who's who of, like, ex-Premier League, like, royalty. Um, I use the word royalty. Maybe, I was going to say, using royalty because
0: Chris Wood's in there.
1: <laughs> okay, Chris Wood, he's just so tall. <laughs> um, they've got Divock Origi, Chris Wood, Callum hudson Adoy, and Anthony Alanga.
0: It's it's quite a list, and, and when you extend that to players like Morgan Gibbs White, and you know, it's it's a real sort of like you know. But well, well, I think of,
1: it's class, by the way. It's Morgan, the kind Gibbs,
0: of eleven you'd have put together on a save in like Football Manager twenty seventeen. You'd have got, you'd have picked Nottingham Forest, and you'd have got to this season with those players, but they'd all be like really, really good.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, no, you, it's littered with uh, with okay. Let's say. Premier League experienced players. Cheku Kuyate, the perfect example of that. Willy Bolly, an excellent example. Of that. Serge Aurier, an excellent example of that. Ola Aina, an excellent example of that. Nico Williams, you really, we could just sit here all day. Anyway, <laughs> um, I think that there is an exciting team of young talent there that someone like Nuno could mould. And the Wolves team that he created before he got sacked was so hard to beat. They and they were so consistent as well, um, not just. In I'm, I'm, tra- I'm
0: trying to remember. Not try, I, I, I might be wrong. Did he get sacked or was he poached by Tottenham? I can't remember. Did he get sacked and then? Tottenham oh no! Signed you're him?
1: Absolutely right. He did get. He he got poached by Tottenham and then he got sacked by Tottenham.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what happened, but I could be wrong.
1: <laughs> no, I think you're bang on. I think you're bang on. Um, good, good edit. Um, yeah, I think um I think Nuno's wolves were great. They were very exciting. Uh, if if not for the fact that he got every single Portuguese lad under the sun, um that was willing to sign for Wolves, um but yeah I think um I do feel bad for Steve Cooper as you say I think it's unfortunate but you know I, I imagine that as soon as um they weren't able to to win not not the Spurs game but as soon as they weren't able to get um, more than a point from the Wolves match that might have been it or maybe maybe Ooh. even Maybe even after they lost to Everton, that was it. And they were just kind of waiting for maybe an easier game, a softer game to to bring the new manager in, which is home against Bournemouth. Um, And that is one where if you can get some points from that, you can really kind of establish yourself as, as this being a different era of the club
0: yeah and it might have also just been because of the way that this has happened, I think there was like <laughs> the way that Steve Cooper was told he was being dismissed. I think they'd already agreed with Nuno to join, and that was sort of like what it, it feels like they were waiting to get their right guy before they were going to let go of Steve Cooper, which does make sense for a club like Nottingham Forest where if you're not careful you could end up in a search for a while if you can't if the right person isn't available um so so I think it was maybe more a case of waiting until they could get the deal over the line with Nuno before they sacked Steve Cooper. I, I do think it's worth True. saying, because I think a lot of people will look at Nuno and think, like, oh, Spurs was Nuno. Like, they weren't very interesting to watch. They played, like, quite dull football, and they, they weren't particularly hot. I think a better comparison is the one you raised, Nuno's Wolves. They did play, at times, some exciting football. At times, they did play some, like, you know, Wolverhampton Wanderers 1-0 football. But he did take them up to seventh place at one point, a seventh place finish. So, you know, he's been able to take, and it's easy to forget now, probably because of those foundations that he's laid, that it wasn't that long ago that Wolves were not a consistent Premier League team they've been up in the Premier League for quite a while now and sort of left their stamp and they're sort of a team that you, you look there every season and you go, oh, Wolves are here, obviously. And I think a lot of that is down to Nuno. So that's where Nottingham Forest won it, or at least where all the fans want to be. I think the owner wants it to be winning the Champions League again, but <laughs> at least the mm-hmm. the fans would be, the fans would probably be very, very happy with Wolverhampton Wanderers' lot, you know, being sturdy and, and solid sort of residents of the Premier League.
1: Well, maybe, maybe he will then later become um the the guy that gets out outgrown um as <laughs> as Steve Cooper has when he's able to to stabilize them and get them into the bottom half of the top half um but for now all we have is is what 's in front of us and yeah i, I think um you know, there's a reason why Spurs picked him up he was a very good manager for wolves and he did exactly what they want him to do here, which is stabilize a club that is uh, uh, threatening to go down.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move into uh, tournament number three, uh, the About Cup. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of the games we had yesterday, um, some specific in-game analysis. But I just want to start off by saying both of these games went to penalty shootouts. I love watching penalties as a neutral. I absolutely hate it when it's like England or it's like my team, but watching them as a neutral is just so fun. Like, there were so many things in both of these penalty shootouts that were hilarious. Like, I love players celebrating mid-shootout when nothing has been decided and yet things can be decided in the very near future against you. Like, I love when players like give it the big one and it's like, Nate, in two and a half minutes you could be knocked out of this tournament. Like I think like I think exactly like Bruno Gabarish did. He did like a fingers in his ears to the home fans. And then like two minutes later they got knocked out. Um I think it's just I, lo- I think
1: it's just relief. That's how I always read it.
0: I, I think I, no, I don't agree, because I think you can see when people express relief. Like you can definitely tell when people are like like um Anthony Robinson's penalty for Fulham was a classic example of relief because he literally just turned away. I think you could see him just exhale and be like almost like thank fuck for that. Whereas some players like they score the penalty, they don't break stride, they like run to the byline or to the corner flag and do like a big celebration. And it's like, mate, that's not a last minute winner. That's like you're still very much in the heat of things.
1: (laughs) No, I I don't know. I I always think that, you know, obviously you're just gonna be gassed when you do something that you're like slightly nervous about and, and it goes in and you're like, hell yeah. I did that. I, don't, I, I hear what you're saying.
0: Yeah, well, maybe. Um, the other thing I really loved was, um, particularly in the Fulham-Everton game, there was an uh, Evertonian who was uh, yelling so loudly at Tosin Adarabioyo uh, when he was taking the decisive penalty that it got picked up by the... Um, the sort of game mics, which I always love. I love when you can hear like a particularly loud fan yelling at the ref or yelling at a player, whatever. And he was just like the entire time he was walking up this guy, Miss, Miss Oh, he's missed already, you're gonna miss And then obviously he just put it away, <laughs> which is peak comedy. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting now, uh, obviously. Well, let's 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 look at the games a little bit. Two tournament exit in a week for Newcastle. Um, Kieran Trippier. I don't know what has been happening to him. Whether he's been eating cement or he's been wearing yeah. uh, shoes that are lead lined or something. But good God, he has gone from being Mister Reliable and sort of like not only Mister Reliable but also chips in with you know some some brilliant uh, attacking contributions as well. To god a massive liability he was uh, you know at fault um for a lot of the like against everton he was at fault uh against um milan he 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 was at fault for one of the goals and then here very late on he makes that horrendous mistake to basically allow mudrick uh, uh, it wasn't the easiest goal he said to finish it quite well but uh, a free go <laughs> late on
1: yeah I, I mean it's it's a big mistake um and it's cost them cost them the um you know staying in in the tournament um or was it in the 90 90 something minute and ninety just
0: yeah 91st i think
1: yeah um it's funny do you know what it reminded me of was i don't know if you if you can immediately recall this but you know in films where a, a like a character gets injured but then like hides the wound and like yeah, carries on. yeah like, like like in a zombie movie yeah and then like at some point they just collapse kind Of feels like he's been like trying to like rally the young people, he's but he just has a bullet wound in him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you might be right. I saw a lot of people <laughs> making like conspiracy theories about him potentially like get, having got the gambling bug from Sandro Tonali, which is definitely not true but quite an amusing sort of like mini theory because obviously he had the betting thing at Atletico Madrid. Um, but I, but oh I think God, that yeah, he did. Your, your theory might be a lot more credible. It may well be the case that like at a time when Newcastle is so riddled with injuries, he's sort of been nursing a little a little knock and it's just like, no, I'm, I'm not going to sort of add to the woes. I need to sort of stand and face um, and be sort of the, the guiding light. And, and instead, he's kind of done the reverse. Um, I do think, obviously, the, the wider context is, as I mentioned, two tournament exits for Newcastle. The Champions League, they'll obviously be particularly annoyed about because of the nature of the game against PSG. I think even the most sort of like staunch Geordie would probably admit Newcastle weren't likely to win it. Whereas I think this tournament, they had they stayed in, may well have because they were probably the second strongest team left in the tournament at this stage. Um, obviously Liverpool is still in um, and are and looking pretty hot this season. But Newcastle obviously got to the Carabao Cup last uh, Carabao Cup final last season. It could have been their year if they had just not <laughs> given Chelsea a chance very late on. Um, I could have definitely seen them doing that. On the other hand, that's not to sort of, you know, completely dismiss Chelsea, who looked like they're maybe reaching a little bit of a turning point, uh, and not just because uh, Christopher Nkunku is now available. Um, players like Mudrich uh, Mudric having a lot of involvement, even, like, despite, even besides his goal, um, getting really involved, making a lot of shots uh, that didn't really go anywhere. Threatening, or either straight to the keeper, or, or wide, or over the bar, but getting involved more more than he has been recently, which is definitely an improvement. Um, and Cole Palmer is always look, looking quite handy. I did think that um, the comparison I had in my head when I watched um, Benoit Badiashile sort of make the mistake for the Wilson goal is it reminded me massively of like one of those goals that you concede on FIFA when like this the CPU kind of fucks up a little bit and, and just, just lets someone take it and you're just like. And and, like the thing that you or your friend always says, you're like, that would never happen in a real game of football. Like EA have completely fucked me there. And I watched it happen in a real game of football. And I was like, damn, maybe they were ahead of the game.
1: They were glitching before glitching was cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah, Chelsea do seem to have um, picked things up in recent weeks. I say recent weeks, recent week, probably, because, uh, Hmm. well, they've won their last two games, by which I mean, they've won one and drawn one in 90 minutes. I mean, only like it was it last week they lost to Everton two nil, and the week before that they lost to to Man U two one, so I, I I would say things are looking better. Um, when I went back again to watch the highlights, the main player that all of the Chelsea fans in the comments were talking about was Conor Gallagher, um, and how he has been very pivotal to this increased uh you know performance level. Um, just really you know being a, a massive physical presence, doing everything in the midfield. Um, I also think Nicholas Jackson has has played very well um, so far this season. Nkuku does excite me. I think, I don't know about you, but I, I saw it as a very good sign that, you know, for Chelsea, that he just banged his penalty in. It felt like yeah. a bit of a breath of fresh air from from what a lot of Chelsea strikers have been like over the years. Um, feels like he's got a lot of confidence and he doesn't seem to be phased at all by anything around him.
0: No, which is definitely a good sign, especially as we discussed a few weeks ago, like he'll have a lot of pressure on his shoulders coming in. I think you bang on about Conor Gallagher as well. Someone who is, he's not the shiny new toy. And I think even earlier this season, he didn't look like the most, when they were sort of playing him uh, in the 10 sometimes, or, or sorry, playing him in the pivot sometimes so that Enzo could play in the 10. he didn't look like the most inspiring player, but he's, he's really turned it around. The one I definitely don't agree about is Nicholas Jackson. I think he's been honking so far. Um, I think he obviously had his million chances against Spurs so so we got to score a hat trick. But other than that, I, I just see that guy miss chances every week. He reminds me a lot of like not exactly, because they have a bit of a different way, but he's he's in that mold of like a Timo Werner, just will absolutely give people headaches all season long and just have people's head in their hands, because it's like, how has he not scored there?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um there's there's a little there's obviously more to his game than finishing, and, and there needs to be because finishing isn't uh his game. <laughs> um I, I think that when I watch him play, he does seem to have like a, a really good ability to ride a challenge and, and dribble and hold up the play. Probably I mean he's not he's not massive um in terms of his, his physical presence. So it almost feels quite and and this is way too high a compliment, but Sergio Aguero-esque in the fact that, you know, he he's quite he's quite a quick, um, slender figure, but is able to hold up in, in the physicality of the Premier League. But yeah, you you're right. He he's not had he's not had the best season so far.
0: Um oh, indeed.
1: Well, I as I said, I, I would say you know, it's that quality, not he has the quality of Sergio Guerrero.
0: Yeah, no, I I I do see that. Um Well look, that's Chelsea. Um Fulham, of course, uh, against Everton, sort of two of the undersung form teams in the Premier League at the moment. As we discussed last week, Fulham sort of just firing goals from all angles. Uh, And Everton, I think, have gained more points over the last uh, four or five games than anyone except maybe Aston Villa. Um, But Fulham just edging it out. What's interesting now is you look at how the other sort of quarterfinals have gone. Someone here is going to get to play a semi-final against Middlesbrough, which is no guarantee, but quite a nice fixture relative to what you might be expecting at this stage in the tournament. And again, for someone like a Newcastle, they'll be thinking, oh God. And for someone like a Fulham, who have never won a a domestic cup, we'll be thinking, oh, okay, this could be the year. You know, all we need to do is beat a, a championship side and then it's 90 minutes in the final in which anything could happen. So that's that belief has probably started to build a little bit now. And even, you know, with with Liverpool, you know, Liverpool play West Ham tonight at the time of recording. And if that result goes one way or the other, it'll be a, a really interesting sort of final four teams to sort of see who wins it.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I think, yeah, you couldn't ask for anything better, could you?
0: no no not really you you would like the only thing you would have wanted more what what i hope happens is if liverpool go through they play chelsea and then the other team uh, and then fulham play um fulham play middlesbrough that's that's what i would like um mm. let's move into a bit of useless trivia uh before we move into some premier league games i've got quite a, a good one for you uh something i read actually about um iker casillas uh, obviously real madrid and spain goalkeeper of your uh he cost his dad once quite a lot of money by failing to put on a bet for him. Uh, When he was a child, Ike Casillas' dad asked his son to pop down to the bookies, this was, of course, uh, before the days of online betting, to place a 14-way accumulator for him, and quite quite a nice little sum that he wanted to put on it as well. Casillas, thinking that the ridiculous wager had no chance whatsoever, pocketed the stake, deciding to tell his father once the 14 way bet inevitably failed uh, that the bet had failed, he'd put the money on, and he could keep his 50 euros or however much it was.
1: Oh,
0: no. <laughs> the following day, all 14 results came through, and there was Mr. Casillas celebrating his 1.2 million euros win when a oh, sheepish no. Ica had to fess up.
1: Oh no. <laughs> so you might think you're a bad son (laughs) but but you've never cost your father millions of pounds
0: thank god it happened to him who was like in the one position one of the few like positions in the world where he could in fit i don't know if he ever did but like make it up to his dad in some form or other whereas most people it's just like you would just that that would be a rift forever your father would still say he loved you but you, you could tell behind the eyes that that wasn't true
1: well maybe maybe that was what spurred him on to, to such, <laughs> he, such <yeah>. heights
0: <laughs> he was like i have to i have to win now i have to be the best
1: that, <laughs> his dad was like you will make this up to me and just just like relentlessly drilled him in the garden
0: <laughs> it was just like not not even sort of trying to make him a good football his dad was just like you have to stay in gold as i like, blast these balls at you <laughs> and by by that it was like really intensive training he got really good at being a goalkeeper
1: yeah, <laughs> just, his dad just like every night would like just pelt balls at him. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I that's that's head cannon worthy. I choose to believe that from now on. Um, right. And hey, honestly, fair play, Ica and maybe Ica's dad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, it's a fair, it's a fair guess that like. I don't really know that much about his home life, but a lot of footballers come from circumstances where they come, they become footballers because they're trying to sort of get a better life for their family or whatever. Maybe if his dad had become a millionaire, we wouldn't have seen uh, Casillas become the keeper because he didn't, you know, he would have lived in the lap of luxury and maybe he would have stopped going to training when he was riding on his private jet ski. Um, and you know, Spain might not have a World Cup and Real Madrid might have a couple less Champions Leagues.
1: Well, there you go. There's the flip side of it. And honestly, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I hear, I hear mm. it. Um well I've got um I've got quite a funny story for you um you might have heard this already but this comes back this goes back to the Arsenal versus Newcastle game back in early November when Newcastle beat Arsenal 1-0 through a controversial goal um indeed <laughs> what I didn't realize until recently this week uh, when I was um I was looking up about it you know that um that post match interview that Mikel Arteta gave where he basically had a massive go he called it a disgrace like three times he said like there's no way that goal could have stood like this is this is terrible the referee was awful all of this stuff Mm -hmm. he didn't receive a fine or a touchline ban and the reason he didn't (laughs) i found out this week is because he managed to convince the fa that instead of saying the word disgrace he was using the spanish word disgracia which means bad luck
0: i did and you know what i did see this and you're not alone in having found this out this week because that news only but basically his um the FA had not yet made a decision, or the independent board had not yet made a decision. And once they made a decision to not charge him, they published all the the like court documents that sort of came out with it, which included and that That's the bit that went viral because everyone was like, "That's such a such a better call, Saul." Like, no, Your Honor, of course I didn't mean disgrace. I'm a Spanish person. I said disgrace, but I meant desgracia, which is obviously very different in meaning.
1: Oh dear. Wait. So is that um is that a is that like a well known thing that I just didn't realise?
0: No, 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 I, I don't think so. I think it's it's come up in some parts. I mean, I, I, when I saw it come out, I was quite interested to, because <laughs> I'm a nerd, uh, read the papers anyway, because I was interested to see what sort of precedent it would set around managerial, um, you know, call-outs about refs and stuff, because I was like, oh, okay, if he's basically said that this isn't okay and the standard's not good enough, but they're okay with it, this sort of independent board, interesting. Um, so I read that. There was, there was some interesting stuff uh, in there, though. One of the other interesting things was that um, – Joe Willock, who is uh, obviously a Newcastle player uh, and a former Arsenal player and was actually the player who had the ball when it was sort of in that contentious position, per the documents, he had said to some of the Arsenal players after the game that he had thought that the ball was out of play himself, as in the player who crossed it in. I think just sort of as a, uh, a, a sort of an ex player talking to his race to be like, "Oh, bad, like guys." Like for what it's worth, I think it's that. and I think that's part of what incensed Mikel Arteta so much because, like, he must have told it to one of the players. One of the players said that to Arteta, <laughs> and that sort of just sent him completely nuclear.
1: Yeah, well, hey, honestly, fair play though. He dodged it, so I guess he can say what he likes as long as it sounds similar to a Spanish word.
0: I wonder. I, I wonder how that will uh, how that will be going around now. <laughs> if, if the refs are going to be like, "Oh, he got away with it," therefore red card for him immediately.
1: Well, hey, I mean the the the, the way to fix it is for them to learn Spanish. And uh, well, I guess that's not the way to fix it. Um, <laughs> I think referees should know more languages than they do, though. I, I I don't imagine there are many English referees that speak more than one language.
0: I think you just need to know the major swear words in case someone's having a pop, don't you? Um, Let's jump back into some football. Uh, First and foremost, Manchester City dropping points once again. Uh, Now five points off the top, four points off second and third place. However, I have this week seen a couple of pictures of Kevin De Bruyne back in training, sporting a brand new look. He's he's grown out his beard and and grown his hair out all grealish like uh, which I can't tell whether it'll make him much better or much worse. I kind of feel like... Now on the one hand, he looks very sort of i mean he looks he looks very handsome if i if I may be so bold, but he looks sort of <laughs> like he's uh right. you know here to get business done, but on the other hand, I'm like oh is this a sign is this you know kevin's uh you know, Kevin's self-care era and his self-care, you know, before when he was had that sort of horrible hairstyle, that was because he was spending all his time on the training ground and he didn't have enough time to get one of those fancy haircuts. Uh, And now that he's sort of grooming himself is that, you know, those 1% are going to be shaved away. I can't tell, uh, but I will stick to that narrative, whichever way it goes when it happens.
1: No, I I think uh, it is villain arc. That's what I think
0: interesting um one in and one out uh Holland's injury maybe more severe than initially thought obviously he missed the Palace game as well uh, and Pep Guardiola sort of insisting it's not a fracture just a bone stress whatever that means um but yeah so so a little bit difficult um the only thing I really wanted to talk about here on the City side, there's one thing I wanted to sort of uh, half-jokingly ask you on, on the the Palace side. Um, not for the first time this season, City's sort of tight, controlling style has come back to bite them. Uh, we saw it, I think it sort of worked best maybe two seasons ago, and then last season they kept conceding in a lot of games. And this season they sort of go one up, and they sort of try and control a game, and on more than one occasion it hasn't worked. There's been sort of that chaos factor that has meant that, you know, it it they, they concede a late goal and they drop points, and I I kind of feel like that just isn't really something you can do in modern football anymore. I, I feel like football has got like it, the game gets faster and faster and more and more physical every single year, and players become more and more superhuman. I kind of think that also just increases the chaos factor. I, I feel like keeping a clean sheet is just or, or stopping the other team from scoring. It's just harder than ever before, because that chaos factor is so large now. And I feel like the longer that City keep trying to do this when they're up in games, the more they're going to drop away. Obviously, they will turn out into a point in like February where they're like, okay, we'll just win every game 5-3 now. Um, but yeah, I think at the moment, they're making a li- little bit of an error, and they're dropping points where they, they probably shouldn't be.
1: That's interesting. I mean, obviously, that's a wider point that you're making, which is that you think it's harder to keep a clean sheet now because... Yeah, there's more there's more chaos there's more there's more chances for just like one single moment for like a anomalous moment to happen
0: i think the the, the, the game is faster yeah. every player on average is better now than they were five years ago like not player x is better necessarily but like the average standard of play i think is just it gets better year on year um every single year. So, so I think that the higher that gets, the harder it becomes to really control games f- over the course of the entire
1: 9-2. Yeah, I mean, I think while that's true, we also have also... We've, we've talked quite a lot of times about the fact that the gap is getting bigger between the top teams and the bottom teams in the Premier League and down the pyramid. So it could be that this is maybe part of the the natural solution. Um, that is created but I, I think um, to be honest I think they've just had a bad run of form you can read into it that these kind of things and they're interesting to talk about but I, I just think that they haven't been winning games that they should have been because they haven't been playing well enough not because I don't know I mean I think we, we talked about the, the Aston Villa game where they lost 1-0 and we said that other teams might try and, and catch them out in the same way and since they lost that game they almost lost to Luton and and now they've They've drawn again to Palace, where they let them back into the game right at the very end. And I think it's one of those things where if you're playing a City side and they're they're on a, a rare run of bad form, you just get so much confidence in you to to try and, and win that game because you you go, when's the next time they're going to be in a bad run of form and we're going to be able to maybe get one point, maybe get three points. Everyone smells blood and goes for it. And I think I think I like to think it's just the the good competitive nature of the Premier League that is creating this bad run of form.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that as well. I and mean, as, as we know, it won't really matter come the end of the season when they win 12 in a row. Uh, let's, oh, the only other thing I was going to say, Jean-Philippe Mateta showing his worth. Two goals in 29 games last season. Two goals in his last two games against Man City and Liverpool this season. Is he going to turn it all around? Probably not, but that's a nice little thing for him to be uh, going home to tell his family about.
1: <laughs> He'll always have that.
0: He'll always have December, 2023. Um, Arsenal next dominate their fixture at home against Brighton, uh, but only leave two nil up a question of philosophy here. Um, some may say that I'm being a little bit curmudgeonly and not giving Arsenal their due. You know, they've, they've absolutely dominated here and they've, they've left with a win. Um, and certainly many Arsenal fans I've seen are very happy with this performance with the return of players like Martin Erdegaard seeming to be back to the, the peak of his powers. Uh, and Kai Havertz as well, sort of finding a, a lot of form in, in recent months. Um, I sort of question, I go the other way, I question whether this sort of game is indicative of Arsenal's main issue this season. Um, loads and loads of chances and only two goals and they're not going to have that many chances every week. Like, on another day, there was a chance that Brighton had quite near the end um, before Arsenal second, where they nearly equalised. And it was easy to see how that could be a game where Arsenal sort of draw 1-1 and drop points against a team they were miles better than. Um, and I think this is just the story of Arsenal season so far. We said it last week, and I'll say it again, if they don't sign a striker as someone who can turn 50 chances into at least three goals, uh, they will have those games. Like, for example, against Newcastle and against Villa, where... They didn't have as many chances, or in Villa they had a few chances, but they weren't as clinical, and they ended up losing those two games.
1: Hmm. What would you say to a counter-opinion that part of the, the good thing about dominating the chances of a game is that you restrict the chances of your opponent? And Brighton only had one shot on target throughout the whole 90-plus minutes, and... I I saw that as a real positive, that Arsenal were able to keep the ball high in in the pitch, Um, stop stop Brighton from having any, any good chances, even though they only scored two. I think, you know, this was a very confident performance.
0: They did, but then at the same, I mean, this is what I was talking about a little bit with City about this chaos factor thing. They very nearly conceded. There was a, I think it was a corner that came in and I, I'm not sure who it was, but someone put it, maybe Pascal Gros, just to the left of the post. And if it had been six inches on the inside, like, yes, they stopped Brighton getting a lot of chances, but they had two shots on target and that chance that wasn't even a shot on target. On another day, and we've seen this happen in the past, like, for example, against Newcastle, or like, for example, against Aston Villa, like that chance or, or some of the games they had last season when they, they were sort of, you know, falling away from the title race. I think if you can't exercise those things, if you leave it that up to chance, you're always going to sort of, when you look at the whole game there, yes, Arsenal's field tilt or whatever was really, really high, but they left themselves vulnerable. And just because they've won, I don't think that that makes that no longer true. I still think that there's a game here that Arsenal should be going, hmm, are we happy with this result? Obviously, yes, the result, but are we happy with how it went? And I think the answer should be no. And I think if they are happy with it, it's a sign that they won't end up winning the league.
1: Mm. Well, I, I I share your nervousness around them winning the league, um, but, you know, it, it is getting up to January and Gabriel Jesus is in the goals. Kai Havertz is in the goals.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly um well they've got a fixture at anfield this weekend uh they cannot afford to be wasteful there certainly they're not going to get uh, a million and one chances uh at anfield so they'll need to figure out how to be clinical hopefully before then or, or if not um to buy someone in january who can be brighton meanwhile when we talk about being clinical um interesting stat coming out of this game this ended their 32 game streak of scoring in league games which was the uh, the fourth longest in premier league history interestingly enough really yeah yeah isn't that crazy
1: that is surprising 32 just... games
0: yeah, win, Fair lose play. or draw, they've, they've just been scoring just every week, which, you know, that's good fun for Brighton fans, at least, even if you're not going to, you know, even if you're not going to get the result, at least you have something to cheer about. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention Here about go, Brighton.
1: How, <laughs> how much does that coincide with selling Neil Morpé?
0: <laughs> I think almost indirectly. Um, <laughs> the only other thing I just wanted to mention. Sorry, uh, Not lots to love about Brighton in this game, except for Lewis Dunk. Um, And just one of those players that, you know, just doesn't get his flowers maybe often enough. And I think maybe he'll look back on his career in years to come. And he's 32 now, so it's a bit too late for him. But you might wonder... Like, if I'd played for a different club or the England team had had a different manager, would I have had an illustrious England career? Would I have been playing in, like, the Euros and and the World Cup? Because I think, honestly, sometimes I watch him and I'm like, you are easily good enough to, but it's just because you play for Brighton Hove Albion that you haven't been given your chance. I think he's had a few caps, but no no tournaments, really.
1: Well, I mean, was Ben White getting chances when he was at Brighton?
0: Uh, No, and now he's not getting chances at all because of some weird argument. But no, I I think that's... Despite Gareth Southgate's sort of thing about, oh, I don't pick players based on who they play for at club level, someone like a Lewis Dunk, who very rarely puts a foot wrong for Brighton, is always going to be eschewed in favour of a Harry Maguire, who quite often puts a foot wrong, but for Manchester United.
1: This is... I mean, who was the last Brighton player to get a chance for England?
0: It would be it'll be Lewis Dunk, but he just hasn't played at tournaments. He's had he's had three caps.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that'll be it. He he's a fantastic player. I I just I feel like there are so many players like that that just it wasn't the right time, they weren't at the right club, they weren't in the right form at the right at the right moment, and yeah, there there are a lot of what ifs in football.
0: Last two games to whip through uh, before we end until Christmas. Uh, Villa, leave it late, but come back swinging versus Brentford. Uh, time for the champ. this-is-what-champions-do narrative. Um... Quite an ugly game though, some really bad uh, tackles, two red cards, Watkins sort of having a back and forth with the Brentford fan who he said was abusing him uh, throughout the game. Uh, both managers sort of agreed on this, even sort of the, the, the winning manager, you know, Emery was like, yeah, this is not what we want to see, I need to talk to my players. Thomas Frank was sort of angry about it as well. He also had a thing about the, the referees and the VAR, he had this great quote where he's like, I don't think the referee got enough help from VAR, and I was like, hmm, Oof. quite nicely sort of... Uh, Tough line for him. Master. <laughs> oh, certainly um but i think the thing really interesting thing here with villa um obviously a, a bit of an ugly win but a win none all the less um it means that they have set it up such that if arsenal and liverpool draw on saturday at anfield uh which i would say is probably pretty unlikely um we could have a situation, if Villa beat, uh, I believe it's Sheffield United, where they are top at Christmas. And obviously, we've all heard the the stats about, you know, how often teams who are top of Christmas win the entire thing. Uh, but more than that, even just ignoring that, crazy to think that Villa could be in a situation where they were top at Christmas. At, like, even this situation now, where that's a possibility, is insane.
1: Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the other part that's that's a weird idea is that it's obviously unlikely, but if City don't get... Um, six points from the next two games, they might finish the year outside of the top four.
0: Wow, I hadn't even thought about that, but that is that is quite something.
1: I mean, they're only um, well, Spurs are only one point behind them at the moment, so you know, if Spurs, Spurs are playing Everton and well, actually they've got three games, um, so they they might finish above City anyway, um, even if City do win all of their games, um, yeah,
0: there you go, City. City have got, they've got Sheffield United at the Etihad on the 3rd of December, which I would be incredibly surprised they don't win.
1: screams 5-0, 6-0.
0: Yeah, but then they've got Everton away on the 27th of December, which they should almost certainly win, but, you know, Sean Dyche's uh, current run of form, if there was ever a time that Everton were going to get a result, which is never, but if there was a time, it'd be now. Um, Last game, uh, just to talk about... Not the most amazing game, but amazing perhaps in its result. We were all sort of forecasting a bit of a thrashing uh, of Manchester United at the hands of Liverpool, something we've seen a fair few times in recent years. And with United not looking that hot recently, um, we thought, oh God, Liverpool might really sort of put Ten Hag out of a job here but they held on res- resolutely, nil-nil. um Werder van Dijk quite salty that they weren't trying to win, which I, I always, we've talked about it before, I always just find it funny when, when players or managers do that. They're like, why wouldn't they go toe-to-toe? That's unfair. It's like, because they knew they'd get bodied? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it always just seems so hilariously petulant.
0: <laughs> it's so funny. It's literally just like they weren't playing the game the way we wanted them to play it. And it's like, yeah, that was quite deliberate actually, mate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it turns out that was a large part of their tactics
0: <laughs> that, that, yeah that they they set out to do that um but yeah not not a massively remarkable game in and of itself um aside from obviously as you referenced uh, or i referenced even at the very start of the episode uh, the sort of double yellow card for diogo dallo by michael oliver who was also the same referee that did the double yellow card for gabriel martinelli so he's got a bit of a hair trigger um but the sort of macro narrative that it is two points dropped from Liverpool. So obviously that saw Arsenal leapfrogged them uh, to go first. Uh, and a big game looming for them on the 23rd. That is now, I mean, what is always a pretty big game at the best of times, particularly a big game given the narrative of the last sort of three, four, five years. Uh, and especially now, given that these two teams are first and second, it is going to be a very Merry Christmas uh, for the fans of one team, but not both, uh, but certainly for the majority of Premier League fans.
1: I think I need to see that that sentence written down. <laughs> um, <laughs> I instinctively think you're right, though. <laughs> um, absolutely, yeah. It's going to be, um, yeah. It's going to be a fun run in to the end of the year. Absolutely, um, and yeah. Who knows what the table will look like come the new year. Um, but until then, Cam, it's probably a good place to stop.
0: Absolutely, Rupert. Great to talk to you as always.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next week.
0: Cheers, guys bye armchair analyst was recorded remotely by cameron mcdonald and rupert meadows the album artwork was provided by a good friend Amschel.